Good morning. All right. Well, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys uh, to worship the Lord. Excited for all that He has in store for us. I want to welcome, uh, see some new faces. Just pray that the Lord ministers to you as you gather with us this morning. We're glad to have you. Also, um, want to welcome those who are streaming online. I know we have some people that aren't able to make it in person, so uh, we're grateful for the technology that allows us to stream content. So uh, thanks for those who are joining uh, online. Well, uh, before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class, as well as our Bible English class. Uh, we'll dismiss them to go with Mr. Dan. Uh, will the rest of you please open up your Bibles, head over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles that are located in a number of the chairs around you. Um, those are for your use if you'd like. This morning we begin chapter 19, which really is the beginning of the end for us here in our study of the Gospel of Luke as he begins to cover the final days of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. From chapter 19 through to the end of chapter 24 and the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be focusing in upon the final days of Jesus' life headed up to and including his work upon the cross, on the resurrection, that happened three days later. Luke uses the final six chapters of his account, a quarter of his entire gospel, to tell us as much as possible that happened in the final week or two of Jesus's public ministry in Jerusalem. And so that's kind of where we're headed now. Chapter 19 is kind of like the beginning of the final portion of Luke's gospel. If you've been with us from the beginning, we've made our way from chapter one all the way through Here we begin chapter 19. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And the title I've chosen for our study this morning is Little Man, Big Promises, or excuse me, Big Problems, uh, Bigger Savior. Little Man, Big Problems, Bigger Savior. We all rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read through the entirety of our text, and then we'll pray, uh, asking God just to lead us and guide us through his word. As I read through, do your best to follow along. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I... Give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to dive into this portion of scripture. I pray that you would just prepare our hearts to receive from uh, your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just continue to be with us, lead us, uh, guide us into all truth. And Lord, I do uh, pray that we would just come with expectant hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would come with open hearts, uh, that you are going to speak and that we're going to be open to that word you speak to us. And so Lord, give us ears to hear Give us hearts to obey. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our account this morning is an account that is only found in Luke's gospel. Um, But it is one that I think most of you have probably heard about. Uh, If you were raised in church uh, or if you've spent any significant amount of time serving in children's ministry then I'm quite sure you've heard about the details of our account this morning. Uh, Though I was not raised in the church, I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 21 years old. 
Uh, I have had the privilege and honor of serving God's little ones uh, through the years. Prior to being the pastor here in Iwakuni, I served in children's ministry in some form or fashion for about 12 years. And uh, during that time, I learned a lot about my Bible and the accounts within it. I think children's ministry is a great place for new believers to learn and study right alongside the little ones. I mean, you're in there and you're like, okay, I got to study because these kids are going to ask tons of questions and I need to know all the answers. And these kids have been going to church longer than I have. And, you know, it's like pretty intimidating, but uh, uh, stretching and good experience. Uh, just fell in love with God's word, you know, teaching it to kids. Um, and while serving in children's ministry, I learned a little song about Zacchaeus that maybe some of you guys know about, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? He climbed up in a tree. for the Lord he wanted to. All right, yeah, you guys know the song, all right? That's the lesson for this morning, all right? You guys got it already, all right? No, um, while, you know, that little jingle may ring in our ears every time we hear the name Zacchaeus or, you know, we read of Luke's uh, account here in chapter 19, there is much more for us to learn from this amazing account. Uh, and so as we go through this account, I want you guys to realize and understand something. We're going to see how the account of Zacchaeus, the, the problems that he faced, how he responded to the Lord's calling upon his life, they actually serve as a real-life example of many of the things that Jesus just taught us about in chapter 18. Okay, if you go back and you look through chapter 18, you'll see this. In chapter 18, we read of the parable of the persistent widow who continually came before the judge, seeking him to right the wrong that had been done to her. And we're going to see, in like manner, Zacchaeus' persistence in his desire to see Jesus. We read of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, how the tax collector left the temple justified because of his humility, his understanding of the sin that he had committed. As well, we'll see. Zacchaeus too was a tax collector, and he too will end up justified before the Lord. Jesus taught about the need to receive the kingdom like a child. And we're going to see and note how Zacchaeus' actions, they lined up more with the actions of a child, more so than a man of a position and power. Also in chapter 18, Luke records for us Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler and what kept him from following after Jesus. Zacchaeus is really the antithesis of the rich young ruler, a great lesson in contrast. Jesus spoke about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into heaven, and the disciples, they wondered, well, you know, if the rich cannot be saved, well, then who can be, right? And Jesus said the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so Zacchaeus is a lesson in the impossible made possible by God. Jesus even told of the rewards that await those who sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom and how God gives much more than what we ever give up. Zacchaeus will give up nearly all he had, but will end up gaining something of immeasurable value in return. And so, as I mentioned, this account really is, it's an object lesson. It's a real life example of many of the things Jesus had just taught about in chapter 18. And so we'll dive back into our text, begin our study by noting the details from our first couple of verses. Read with me verses one and two again. It says, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. All right. We're first told about the setting of this event. We're told that this uh, all occurred while Jesus was passing through the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho uh, was a very prominent city in that day. It was one of three major gateways that were used by travelers to enter into the city of Jerusalem. Anyone really traveling from the east and wanting to enter into the city of Jerusalem would have to enter into and pass through the city of Jericho and take what's called the Ascent of Adumim. Uh, the Ascent of Adumim was a little more than 15 miles long. It began in the city of Jericho, which was more than 800 feet below sea level. And it went up to Jerusalem, which was nearly 2,500 feet above sea level. And though this was not a, a great route to take because it was you know, a, a steady incline and, and not so uh, easy to do, 
Uh, it was also notorious for robbers and thieves that would hide out along the road, waiting for exhausted travelers to pass through. And so uh, it was not a, a great way to travel, but it was the only way to travel. So everybody coming from the east would be funneled through that way, right through the city of Jericho. And as we noted last week, when covering the details of Jesus entering into the city of Jericho and his encounter with blind Bartimaeus, if you were with us last week, this time of year, the city would be filled with travelers making their way through Jericho on their way into the holy city of Jerusalem in order to take part in the upcoming Jewish feast of Passover and unleavened bread. These were part of the Jewish feasts that were required for all males to come and, and attend uh, three feasts out of the year, three of the seven feasts required attendance in Jerusalem. And so this was one of them. And so they would come. The city would be packed at this time. Now, in verse two, we are introduced to a certain man who ends up being the focal point of this account. And we're told a few things about him. First off, we're told the name of this man. In verse two, uh, it tells us that his name was Zacchaeus. Now, the name Zacchaeus is of Hebrew origin, and this tells us that Zacchaeus was a Jewish man. Uh, His name in Hebrew means pure or innocent, or some translations have it as righteous one. Uh, Now, naming children back in the day was something that carried a lot of significance, a lot of meaning. Uh, We recently covered the details of Genesis chapter 25 and the birth of Esau and Jacob. The names of these twins were based upon Isaac and Rebekah's initial observations of the children. When Esau was born, he came out uh, rather hairy. And so they named him Esau, which literally means hairy. They're like, that kid's got a lot of hair. Let's name him Esau, you know, because that means hairy. And then uh, when Jacob was born, he was seen grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And so they called him Jacob, which is a play on the word for heel catcher. And so names had significance. They had meaning. Sometimes names were often used to represent the hopes or the desires of the parents for their children. I think it's safe to assume that Zacchaeus's parents had great hopes and desires for their son to grow up into a man of purity, into a man of innocence, into a a man of righteousness before the Lord their God. It must have pained them greatly to see what their son had turned into, a man who would be the disdain of most Jews, a man despised and considered a traitor by his own people. And why would they feel that way? Well, because verse 2 also tells us what Zacchaeus did as a profession. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector for the Roman Empire. The word chief tax collector is actually one word in the Greek, and it's only found here in Luke's gospel this one time. It isn't used in any of the other uh, of the gospel accounts or any other New Testament uh, epistles or letters. Okay? There were other tax collectors, okay, But Zacchaeus is the only mention of a chief tax collector. Uh, The meaning of the word carries with it the idea that he was the leader of tax collectors, perhaps that he oversaw a group of tax collectors that worked for him in gathering taxes from the people. Now, tax collectors during Jesus' day were considered to be some of the worst people of society. They were associated with the heathens, those who were disconnected from the people and from the Lord Jehovah. Most often, they were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire. And the Jews, they despised the Roman Empire and their rule over them. The idea of having one of their own turn against them and serve the Roman Empire was seen as a disgrace. Okay? They would be considered traitors and outcasts by the Jewish population. Now, on top of that, not only did they work for the Roman Empire, they were notoriously corrupt. In Rome, well, Rome did very little to keep these guys in check. Okay? That meant that these were people with great power, with great authority, and they kind of could do whatever they wanted to do. Okay? They could get away with a lot of stuff because as long as Rome got their money, well, they didn't care much about what else was going on. Hey, you've got a quota to meet. You give me your quota, great, you're good to go. I don't care what else you're doing. And so what would happen is it led to great abuse. 
It led to great extortion on behalf of many of the tax collectors. In fact, they would earn much of their livelihood based primarily off of how much extra they could gather in taxes. They had a certain quota to meet, and anything above that they were able to keep as their own earnings. You know, we hear and get an idea of this corruption early on in Luke's gospel when John the Baptist is out doing ministry and many people were coming out to him. Uh, many sinners were coming and asking, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Well, amongst the group, we know that there was Jewish tax collectors that came to John the Baptist during that time frame. And they asked him, teacher, what shall we do? And John replied, collect no more than what is appointed for you. And we get the sense that that was not the norm. Okay. Normally, they would collect much more than what was appointed for them and line their own pockets with the surplus. And so a lot of corruption. So they would, everybody just hated these guys, okay? We're told that Zacchaeus was rich. Most tax collectors were pretty well off. And we can only imagine the wealth that a chief tax collector would be able to amass. Jericho, you guys recall this, it was a big city. It was a city along a major trade route. A lot of people, a lot of business would pass through that city and all of it needed to be taxed. And no doubt this aided Zacchaeus in amassing his great amount of wealth. It's very important, you guys, that we remember what Jesus had to say about the rich back in chapter 18. Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard Jesus say this, they replied, who then can be saved? Like if the rich can't be saved, well, then nobody has a shot at it. This is how Jesus replied. He proceeded to tell them the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so Zacchaeus is looking at an impossible situation right here, okay? A situation where he needs God to intervene and work a miracle if there were to be any hope of him entering into the kingdom of God. But his riches were just the beginning of some of the problems he faced. Let's continue and look at what verses 3 and 4 have to say about Zacchaeus and his situation. Verse 3, And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. We'll stop right there. Verse 3 tells us that Zacchaeus sought to see who Jesus was. The verb sought, it's actually written in the imperfect tense, which speaks of an action occurring in the past with no assessment of the action's completion which means Zacchaeus had been seeking to see Jesus for some time, okay? And back in the past, from this time, he had sought to see him. He's continued to try to seek after him, to see him, and he's not been able to do so. Um, he wanted to see him, to see who he was. The sense of this verb is that Zacchaeus sought after Jesus, but without any sort of success. He's unable to see him. Now, the Greek verb used here is the verb zeteo, uh, it means to seek after or to strive to find, uh, to endeavor for something or to desire after something or someone. Zacchaeus had been seeking for, striving to find opportunity to see for himself who this Jesus was. And I believe it is evident from the reading of this scripture that Zacchaeus must have heard something about this man, Jesus, and what he has been doing throughout the land over these last three years. A man like Zacchaeus would pride himself on knowing the comings and the goings of the day, the things people were talking about, the things people were interested in, the things people were doing. He had to have a vested interest in what was going on because he was taxing them for everything that was going on. There's no way in my opinion, he hasn't heard about this Jesus. Okay? And it makes me wonder what Zacchaeus has heard. Who are his sources? What are they saying? You know, why, why has it perked Zacchaeus' interest so much? Perhaps Zacchaeus has heard about Jesus and his reputation. Jesus had a reputation as being a friend of sinners and 
tax collectors. And so maybe he's heard about this Jesus, this uh, son of man that's come and has been accused of being a friend of tax collectors. Maybe he longed for someone that would accept him, someone that would befriend him, that he might have a real genuine relationship with someone. You see, as a chief tax collector, nobody wanted to hang out with you. (laughs) Maybe other tax collectors and that was it. As a chief tax collector, he would be in charge of other tax collectors and would probably be familiar with or at least met a few of them who had seen Jesus for themselves. Maybe he had heard from other tax collectors how Jesus treated them, how he loved them and took them in, how many of them turned their lives around and and started following after him once they had met with him. We do know that one of Jesus' own 12 disciples, Matthew, also known as Levi, was himself a tax collector prior to Jesus calling him to follow him. It makes me wonder if Zacchaeus and Matthew knew each other. If Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, maybe he knew all the other tax collectors in and through that area. I wonder if Matthew had ever shared with Zacchaeus about the Lord. Or maybe even if, if Matthew had been praying for Zacchaeus. You know, we don't know, and we can't say for certain, but it definitely perks my interest. All we know with certainty is that this man, for whatever reason, he has been seeking after Jesus, but unable to get a glimpse of him, unable to see for himself who this Jesus was. You know, I do find it very interesting, and I think it worth noting, that Zacchaeus was a man of power, a man of prominence. Okay, He had position, he had great prosperity, the things that so many in this world seek after. He had them all, and yet he's still seeking after something else. You see, those things, they did not satisfy him. He longed for something more. He longed for something of meaning, something that would give to him purpose. He was still empty. He's still searching for something else. He had power, position, prestige, prosperity, but he lacked purpose. And he lacked a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In our text, there are two things that Luke mentioned as barriers to Zacchaeus in this immediate situation. First of all, Zacchaeus was limited in his ability to see Jesus simply because of the crowd. The crowd was no doubt large, and it could simply mean that it was difficult for Zacchaeus to make his way through the crowd. But I wonder if it wasn't something else. The mere idea, per, idea perhaps, of Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector entering into a large crowd of people was probably something that brought on a bit of fear. Everyone hated this guy, okay? And and how many people would long to just take their shot at the chief tax collector trying to squirm his way through a large crowd, especially he's, he's a little short, so you know, you just kind of swing your elbow and bop him right in the nose or whatever, yeah. There could be a lot of people that would could do a lot of harm within a large crowd. And so this crowd, the idea of him entering into it to try and see Jesus simply was not an option for Zacchaeus. The second thing Luke mentions is the fact that Zacchaeus was of short stature. Okay, uh, uh, The more politically correct way we say is vertically challenged. Uh, so uh, I know a few people who are sensitive to the S word, so we don't say that. Um, because he was a a wee little man, uh, it was difficult for him to see up over the crowd, to know where Jesus was, how to get to him. What could he do? Does he risk his life, throw himself into the masses and hope that they don't beat the life out of him? He can't make himself grow any taller, okay? But his chance to see Jesus is right before him. It almost seems like it might be slipping away. What is he to do? What could he do? Verse 4 speaks, tells us what he did. Zacchaeus decided to run ahead along the path Jesus was taking, climb up into a tree in order to see Jesus when he passed by. Now, this would be a very odd thing to see. No self-respecting man of position and power would be seen running in public. This would be considered beneath them. Criminals run. Children run. Peasants run. Workers may run. But not men of power. Okay, not, not men of position like Zacchaeus. And even more degrading would be to see a man of Zacchaeus' position and power to, to climb up a tree 
Again, that was something a man like him would never do. Climbing trees was for children. But something inside of Zacchaeus drove him to act like a child. His curiosity about the Lord, who he was, how he treated other tax collectors, it drove him to the place where he didn't care what others thought about him or whether they would laugh at him for running and climbing up a tree. He didn't care if they sneered at him or mocked him. He was determined not to miss his opportunity to see who Jesus was for himself. Again, looking back in chapter 18, it was Jesus who said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Here we see elements of that childlike faith in Zacchaeus developing. He didn't care about what others would say or do or think about him running up the street, climbing up into a tree. He was determined to see Jesus. It reminds me of what the prophet Jeremiah said when he spoke on behalf of the Lord to the children of Israel. He said, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Isaiah, the prophet proclaimed, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, when God is doing a work, when he is stirring in your heart, the time to respond is then and there. Okay? As he draws us to himself, we need to respond with all our hearts. We need to seek after him while he may be found, while he is near. We need to take advantage of the opportunities that we have when God is moving and when God is stirring our hearts. I think it's plain to see that God has created a desire for him within Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus longs to see Jesus for who he is. And though Zacchaeus may not have recognized what was happening, it's evident that God was working upon his heart. It was John Calvin that wrote, Curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. God had put that curiosity within him. Zacchaeus longed to see Jesus, and what was being birthed in him was something extraordinary, something miraculous. Let's read our next verse, find out what happened next after Zacchaeus climbed up that tree. Read verse 5 with me. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. As Jesus passed by and looked up, there was Zacchaeus hanging out in a tree. Jesus saw Zacchaeus, and I wonder what that first look must have been like for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had been trying for quite some time to see who Jesus was for himself, for him to lay eyes upon him. And as Jesus passed by, it was Jesus that looked up at him. Jesus saw him. You see, what Zacchaeus didn't know or understand is that Jesus was the one seeking after and longing to see him. Zacchaeus thought he was the one longing to see Jesus when in fact it was Jesus that was longing to see him. This divine appointment was set in place by the Lord. It was the Lord who was orchestrating these events, providing this opportunity for Zacchaeus to respond to Jesus. And you guys know the same is true for each and every one of us. God seeks after us. He sees us. He sees us in our longing for something more. He sees us in our emptiness. He sees us trying to fill our lives with a whole lot of junk that simply will not satisfy. And he longs to meet our needs. He longs to be the answer for our continual search for meaning and purpose. He longs to fill the void in us that only he can fill. Jesus not only looked up at Zacchaeus and saw him, but verse 5 also describes how Jesus called Zacchaeus by name. Again, I wonder what Zacchaeus must have thought when he first caught eyes with Jesus, looked upon him for the first time, and then to hear Jesus call out to him by name. I imagine it was overwhelming for him. Jesus declared in the Gospel of John, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Jesus knows us all by name. I thought it was interesting. You got Joshua, Jenny, Jen, and Josh. Like, I thought, oh, wow, they did that on purpose? God knows each of you by your names, even when you sit right next to each other, right? Okay? 
God knows each and every one of us by name. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. The very number of hairs upon our heads, they are counted by the Lord. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows our every thought, our every word, our every action. He knows what is hidden in the deepest recesses of our hearts and minds, and He loves us without end. Jesus knew Zacchaeus long before that afternoon in Jericho. And he longed to meet with him and to have a personal relationship with him, to have this personal encounter with him. The rest of verse 5 tells of how Jesus told Zacchaeus to make haste, to hurry up, come down, for Jesus must stay at his house today. This was a necessity. Jesus needed to stay with Zacchaeus, to lodge in his house, to take up residence in his home. It was a must. And I believe this is a beautiful picture of the work that Jesus does in us when he calls us to come to him. He invites us to come to him so that he may take residence, not just with us, but within us. When we responded to the call of the gospel, the call to come to Jesus, to give our lives to him, he gave to us his Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us, to take residence within us. And now our bodies are the home. They are the temple of the Lord. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Later on in chapter six, he'd ask again, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? Because we responded to his gracious call to us, we are now able to abide with Christ, to dwell with him now through the spirit and to dwell with him forever in heaven. Well, let's read a a few different responses that took place as a result of this calling unto Zacchaeus. Read with me verses 6 and 7. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Well, two responses are seen in our text. We'll start with Zacchaeus' response to Jesus' call to him. We see that he immediately obeyed exactly what Jesus told him to do. Jesus called him by name, told him to make haste and come down, and Zacchaeus' response was to immediately respond in obedience to that call. He didn't waste any time in responding to Jesus. You know, I imagine Zacchaeus probably had questions for Jesus, like, how did you know my name? (laughs) Or how long will you be staying? Or maybe not to mention just the questions that I believe he probably was pondering while seeking after the Lord. Like, why was he willing to be a friend to tax collectors when all the rest of society wanted nothing to do with him? But those questions he no doubt had, they did not cause him to delay in responding to Jesus. See, there are people today who have been seeking for answers, who have been looking for meaning and purpose in life, and God has been calling out to them, and he's been working upon their heart, but they let the unknown keep them from submitting to the Lord completely. They have questions, and they want to find all the answers before yielding their life to the Lord. Listen, that's simply not how it works. The answer to the most important question, you guys, is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the answer to our greatest need. And and you know what? All the other questions, they aren't nearly as important as that one. Don't let questions, the unknown, keep you from responding to the Lord and being obedient to that call. Listen, Jesus doesn't give us all the answers. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and tell you, oh, well, you just need to come to Jesus and then he'll give you all the answers. That's not true. Jesus doesn't give us all the answers. I still have questions. I've been walking with the Lord for quite some time now. But I found, and and maybe you have as well, that Jesus was and he continues to be the answer to my biggest questions. And the rest, you know, I, I can entrust to him. He's proven to be more than sufficient for me, more than faithful. And I can trust him with those questions I have and those uncertainties I have. I don't have to have all the answers. Zacchaeus didn't waste any time. 
We're told that he received Jesus joyfully. He welcomed him into his home with gladness and great joy. And we don't know exactly when the spiritual conversion took place, but we get the sense that when Zacchaeus welcomed him into his home, that this was not just talking about a physical act, but a spiritual one as well. Zacchaeus became the guest in his own house, for Jesus was now his master. He was ready to obey the Lord, do whatever was necessary to establish a genuine testimony before the people Speaking of which, the people in the crowd is the other response we read about in verse 7. How did the people respond to Jesus going to stay at the house of Zacchaeus, a well-known sinner? We're told that they complained about it. The word carries the idea of grumbling and murmuring. Remember, the people hated Zacchaeus and men like him. He was seen as a traitor and heathen to the Jewish people. How on earth could Jesus go and stay with such a wicked, horrible person like Zacchaeus? Does he not know what this man has done? Does he not know how he has robbed us blind? How he has become a puppet in the hands of the Roman Empire that oppresses us? How could he do such a thing? Let me tell you something. Jesus knew full well who Zacchaeus was. Jesus knew exactly what he had done. He knew how he had exploited the people. He knew that he was seen as a traitor and an outcast for his connection with the Roman Empire. He knew all about it and then some, but as we'll see, that is exactly the kind of person that Jesus came for. He came to save sinners, not the righteous. When Matthew, the tax collector, came to faith in Jesus Christ, he responded to his own call to Jesus. He threw a great feast for Jesus in his own house. And we're told that a great number of tax collectors and others joined with them. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw it, they too complained, directing their murmuring and their grumbling towards Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, their hearts, the words that they spoke, He responded to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He came for the lost. He came for the outcast. He came for the heathen. He came for the hurting, for the lonely, for the sick. He came for each and every one of us. You know, some people think that certain people have just gone too far and that they are beyond the grace of God. But let me tell you something. No such person exists. None are beyond the grace of God. There is not a sinner alive today that has sinned so badly that he cannot find grace in the sight of our Lord. The grace of our Lord is far-reaching. The price Jesus paid upon the cross was and continues to be sufficient to cover any and all sin. Do not underestimate the power of the cross. Do not underestimate the reach of God's grace. You see, the problem with the people in the crowd is that they didn't realize they were just as bad off as Zacchaeus. You see, we're all in the same boat We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 23. We're all sinners in need of the grace of God. The people complaining about Jesus going to stay with a sinner thought they were better than Zacchaeus, but they were no different. In fact, we could say that they were worse off in, in one sense, for at least Zacchaeus understood his sin and his need for saving. He responded in faith to Jesus' call upon his life while most in the crowd would end up churning against Jesus eventually within the next week and a half or so, in fact. They will all turn against him. And they will cry out, crucify him. We don't have anything to do with him. Let's read verse 8, see what transpired next. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. We get the sense that this is back at Zacchaeus' house. I imagine he had a large home, uh, plenty of room for many who were traveling with Jesus. He was, after all, a chief tax collector, very rich. 
The crowd, as we'll see, is still close by. We don't know exactly where, but we know from verse 11 that they're listening in to all this that's going on. Jesus and Zacchaeus seem to have been sat by each other, no doubt talking, sharing with one another. What was said or what was talked about, we don't know for certain. But what we do know is that all of a sudden, Zacchaeus stands to his feet and said, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now, get, we get the sense that this was an unsolicited response. Okay, this wasn't as if Jesus was telling him to do this. Okay, this was a genuine, spontaneous, uh, completely voluntary response on behalf of Zacchaeus. And it stands in such a stark contrast to that of the rich young ruler we just read about in chapter 18. The rich young ruler came to Jesus thinking that he had kept all of the law, that he had met the requirements for entering into the kingdom of God. But Jesus told him that there was one thing that he lacked. Do you guys remember when we went through that portion of scripture? Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus knew he had kept all those other, okay, maybe he did keep all those other laws, but he knew that he had placed his possessions above the Lord. He was guilty of breaking the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. His possessions possessed him. When the rich young ruler heard this call from Jesus, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. The rich young ruler was not willing to part with his many possessions. As I said, his possessions possessed him, kept him from freely following Christ. But contrast that with what we read here. Zacchaeus willingly, voluntarily decided to give half of all of his goods, half his entire wealth to the poor. And on top of that, he stated he would return fourfold to all whom he had taken from by false accusation. And I want you to understand this. When Zacchaeus said, and if... I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation. The if is written in the first class conditional, which is assumed to be true. Okay, we can almost read it as since. Okay? Zacchaeus was admitting and confessing his sin and stating how he planned on making amends for the wrongs that he had done. Since I have done this, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to return back everyone I've defrauded fourfold. Now the law was very specific when it came to people being robbed or stolen from and how restitution was to be made. In the book of Leviticus, it states that the prescribed restitution for anyone that has been robbed or who has been the victim of extortion, just like what's described here in what he was doing, extorting these people, okay? The law is very specific. In Leviticus chapter 6, it tells us, that the guilty party was to restore in full what was taken from them and then add one-fifth more to it. Okay? And so the law required a 120% return, but Zacchaeus offers to give a 400% return, going far and beyond what the law prescribed. Zacchaeus was rich. He was extremely wealthy, but I doubt he would have much left over after giving half of his goods to the poor and paying back fourfold to all the people that he had defrauded. But listen, what he gained in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ could not compare to all the gold and the silver he could ever gather. The value of his soul being redeemed outweighed any worldly riches he could have ever amassed or he could have ever given away. Jesus said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing was more valuable than his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. He gave up much, but what he gained in return was immeasurable. Zacchaeus immediately started bearing fruit in accordance with his repentance. He was a changed man, a new man. The scriptures attest, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The riches that once defined him, 
the riches that once drove him to be the man that he was no longer ruled his life. That was the old Zacchaeus. That was his old way of life. He had given it all up. He had surrendered it all. He had a new life. He had a new master. And he immediately showed that change in his life in departing from his sinful ways. Let's finish up our text reading the final two verses. We'll wrap this study up. Verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus responded to Zacchaeus and his declaration stating, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. What exactly did Jesus mean here by saying that Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. Was he simply talking about his Jewish heritage? Well, we already know that Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, so that wasn't something that was new. Okay, And so what did Jesus mean? What does it mean to be a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham? How do you become a son of Abraham? Well, it depends on who you ask. Okay, If you... If you were to ask a Jew how to become a son of Abraham, they would tell you that you need to be circumcised, that you need to follow the law of Moses. If you were to ask a Muslim, they would probably tell you that you need to profess faith in Allah as God and follow the teachings of Muhammad, not the teachings necessarily of Moses. But what do the scriptures actually teach us about becoming a son or daughter of Abraham? Romans chapter 4 in speaking of Abraham, states, and he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so despite what some Jews may say, Becoming an heir with Abraham, a son or daughter of Abraham, is not connected with circumcision or connected through the law, but through faith. Galatians makes it even clearer when Paul writes there. He says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. He concludes his remarks in Galatians 3, stating, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we become sons and daughters of Abraham. And so when Jesus said salvation had come because he also is a son of Abraham, he was speaking about Zacchaeus' faith. It was through his faith that he became a son of Abraham, who is, we refer to him, the father of faith. It wasn't through his works. His works did not save him. His giving half of his goods to the poor didn't bring salvation to his household. Promising to return fourfold to those whom he had wronged did not bring salvation to his household. It was faith in Jesus Christ. The works that followed, well, they were simply evidence of his faith in action. And I think it's important that we do remember the words of James here as well. James said, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. Your translation may read, made complete. James talks about how our faith without works is what? Dead. Okay? A true faith in the Lord will show itself in our works. If you are a believer in the Lord, then there is a certain expectation that there will be fruit in your life. Works that accompany your faith. 
And so Zacchaeus then becomes a picture for us, an example, a model of, of both what Paul spoke about and what James spoke about, right? He was saved by his faith alone in Jesus Christ, as Paul talked about, but his faith was not alone, for it was accompanied by his works, like James talked about. They were a demonstration of his faith in Jesus. There's that balance. I believe it was Martin Luther who's attributed with the famous quote, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In verse 10, we have the main theme of the entire book of Luke. Jesus Christ came as the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. He came as the promised Messiah to seek. Okay, it's that same Greek word used early in our text in speaking about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. Jesus came to seek after, to strive to find and to save that which was lost. The word lost speaks of the spiritually lost, the spiritually dead. He came to find them, to bring to them eternal life. That was his mission, to bring salvation to a lost and dying world. A mission that he was successful in completing as his sacrifice upon the cross paid our debt, allowing us to receive the salvation that he alone can offer through his victory over sin and death. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the example of Zacchaeus, Lord, uh, really this real-life example of so many of the teachings that you just had us go through in chapter 18, Lord. Lord, he was a man that was seeking after you, Lord, um, and didn't even realize that it was you that was seeking after and desiring a relationship with him. And it was you that was doing that work in his heart. And Lord, I hope, at least, for those that are here that know you, Lord, that we can recall that work, that feeling. And when you first called us and we responded to that call in our lives, that feeling that we had of, of just needing and knowing we needed something more, knowing that we were insufficient, knowing we needed your grace to cover our lives, Lord, knowing we needed a Savior. Lord, I thank you for your work in seeking after us. And Lord, I do want to pray, Lord, I don't know everybody here um, personally, intimately, but Lord, I do ask that if there is anybody here that has yet to respond, and Lord, I pray that if they're here this morning and you are working upon their heart right now and they feel that tug, that sense of just, man, I like Zacchaeus, I'm seeking after things, but I'm just not finding fulfillment. I'm not finding purpose. I just don't know what it is, but there's something there. Lord, show them that you are the answer. Lord, I pray that they would yield their lives to you, that they would surrender their lives to you today as, they, as that you would be their Lord and Savior. And Lord, that they would believe in faith. Lord, that's how salvation comes to us. It's it's through faith alone, in your work alone, Lord. And, and Lord, we trust, we know that there is an expectation of works to follow. That's an expectation. If you are our Lord and Savior, then there are certain uh, things that our life should display that, Lord. We understand that. Lord, I pray for anybody here that perhaps is living a life that is perhaps contrary to that. Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, that we would turn from those things, that we would start to live our lives in such a way that we bring honor and glory to you, that people would see our lives and think, that man, that lady knows Jesus. And Lord, that we might praise you and give honor and glory to you for the work that you do in and through us. Lord, we love you. Again, we thank you for this portion of scripture, the lessons within them. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.